Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Okay, test, test, test. Okay. All right, Alok, are you ready to record this week's intro? Um, can you sit That's my producer, Jason. Every okay, week we sit down to record the intro to this podcast and he gets me to repeat lines over and over and over again. Sorry, can you just emphasise the now a little bit more? But how advanced is the technology now? Mm, no, that's not quite right. Why don't we try something like, but how has the technology advanced recently? Okay. But how has the technology advanced recently? Still no, not right. that's still not quite right. Um, you know, sometimes I wish I could just have an AI do all of this work for me. It's a complete waste of my time. You're being ridiculous, Alan. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> So this week, I haven't even bothered to record the intro. I might sound like a lock, but in fact, I'm just words typed into a computer. In effect, I'm a low-budget deepfake or artificial intelligence voice synthesizer of a lock jar. In fact, we don't even need the real lock anymore. Well, that is spooky. Could you tell that that really wasn't me speaking? This is the real Alok, by the way. Deepfake technology seems to be everywhere, and it's improving rapidly. Very soon it could reach the point where it'll get difficult for any of us to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. So, what happens then? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I promise you, I'm the real human Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today, how to verify digital media. We'll investigate how to detect deepfakes, both in audio and video form. And while mass-scale deepfake disruption might still be some way off, authenticating footage today is still essential. For example, in war zones where trust has been eroded on all sides. How can technology help to solve this disinformation dilemma? Deepfakes are generated media, be they audio or visual, that use machine learning often to create scenes that never happened. Patrick Trainer is a professor of cybersecurity at the University of Florida. He specializes in deepfakes. So... I imagine that in your childhood, you probably used something like Microsoft Paint to make very simple images, to copy and paste things, and it probably looked pretty bad. But the deep part in deepfake implies the use of machine learning, or deep learning in particular. And so we have complex models that are able to learn over many, many images or audio samples or videos, and then generate something that is fairly convincing to its viewer. And the idea being that you could trick large amounts of the population that 
their leader is saying something that they never said, or a doctor is telling somebody some bad information about you know what drugs to take or something like that. Yeah, so you can imagine that in both targeted and broad senses, deepfakes could be dangerous. So in the targeted sense, you could imagine that uh, a loved one or a boss, uh, some figure of authority to you personally, might be imitated telling you to do something which is absolutely not in your interest. And in fact, you hope that person would never encourage you to do that. In a broad sense, you could imagine that this could be used politically. So you could imagine conversations that might have negative political consequences that never happened could accidentally be leaked and a scandal, say, right before an election could be manufactured. Now, before we all get too concerned about it, how good is the technology today? How how convincing is it? The answer is it's pretty good. And in fact, the changes in the last five years have made it such that it's getting more and more difficult for the average citizen to differentiate between real and generated And if you are an average citizen dealing with a piece of video or audio that is a deep fake, I mean, how could you tell? I mean, are there things that you can do without using technology that give the game away? Are there tells? Absolutely. And I want to note, though, that some of these tells are rapidly disappearing because the technology is getting better so much faster. So often looking for inconsistencies is a great way to do so. Imagine looking at a generated face and noticing that it's only wearing one earring or that one nostril is larger than the other. Bits of anatomy or fashion that don't quite line up, those might be good hints for you in that space. But as we learn these subtle inconsistencies, the machine learning algorithms are getting better and better and not making those mistakes. They're adding randomization. They look nearly legitimately perfect. Okay, well, let's talk about your research then. You've been working on audio deepfakes and using a more technological approach to try and uh, root out some of these things that perhaps humans themselves can't notice. Just talk me through how you approach the problem. So if you have a piece of audio you're listening to, how can you tell it's a deep fake? Well, there are many ways. And in fact, we have an overarching approach in my group to try and figure out from an audio perspective, fundamentally what makes us human. That might sound like kind of a strange philosophical question. It's a pretty deep question. (laughs) (laughs) It is, but you know, there are some interesting things. So a, a student came to me two years back And I said, you know, I want you to go and take a voice sample and tell me everything you can about the thing that created that sample. And that started a a very deep journey for us, looking for structures that produce human voice. You see, it turns out human beings are a series of tubes. And what I mean by that is that our vocal tract has certain alignments and certain physical limitations. And so we can make sounds that are limited by that biology. So what our approach does is it takes the audio and then goes backward and tries to recreate the physical structures that were necessary to create that. And we use this backward recreation in order to determine, was that structure something that a human being might have had? So you take the audio and use that to approximate the shape and the dimensions of the vocal tract that supposedly created that sound. Yeah, let me give you an example. If you say the word who, your lips are likely pursed uh, in an O circular pattern. And then you say the word has, your mouth is open and the back of the roof of your mouth is wide open as well. The transition between who and has 
takes a certain amount of time and you can feel that biology of your vocal tract moving. We often see that when machine learning is involved, it doesn't consider those specific configurations. And so while it sounds to a human being as legitimate, we're actually able to mathematically measure that the vocal tract that it picked not only doesn't match the correct one, but in fact matches impossible ones. So I guess humans are limited in terms of the sounds they can make by their biology and the vocal tracts and shapes and things they have, but machine learning models are not. There's no reason why they couldn't create a sound that seemingly comes from a, a very different looking vocal tract altogether. So how much audio do you need for your model to detect whether something is fishy or not? Um, you know, how accurate is it? Yeah, that's a great question. So we in general look for approximately 15 seconds of audio, but we can do it with less depending on the phonemes that are used. If you're not familiar, phonemes are the basic sounds that make up letters and, and subparts of words. So once we have enough phonemes, and in particular, it's the transitions between those phonemes that matter, then we can make judgments about that. How accurate has your method been uh, in testing? Well, we've tested this on over 5,000 samples of deepfakes generated by both ourselves and others. At the current time, we have 99.9% .9 accuracy. Now, as that said, expands, of course, you know, we may lose some accuracy, but we're very confident in our results. In particular, as we get more audio from a single conversation, these incorrect moments seem to pop out more and more. So just to get that straight, you initially tested around 5,000 example sentences and the system was able to label whether they were deep fake or real human ones, apart from a very few, uh, which you got wrong. That's an impressive start for a novel method. What are the limitations of systems like yours? I mean, could it be fooled by a noisy environment or an echoey room? Or if there's many, many voices, how does it try and pass all of that information to work out whether the audio clip is fake or not? That's a great question. So one thing that we're seeing increasingly in deepfakes is the addition of noise, background noise, or even music to make it difficult for human beings to determine whether or not they're hearing a robot uh, or uh, another human. The good news is that there are some natural phenomena known as psychoacoustic effects, and that is that human beings are very good at cutting through some of that background noise to determine you know, what one individual is saying. So uh, imagine being at a cocktail party with hundreds of people around you talking. You can ignore basically everything in the background and focus on that one uh, individual. I was gonna see all of my friends and we were gonna go out for drinks and for dinner, but then I tested. So on top of the biomechanical things that I mentioned to you, we're trying to incorporate these psychoacoustic effects to determine whether or not you're speaking to a robot. We've talked about deepfakes, which use machine learning to essentially create new audio clips. But of course, you know, before machine learning came along, people were inventing audio clips by stringing together bits of audio 
from recordings they'd have of a real person, shallow fakes, if you like, which just string together edits of people's words. Can your system detect those as well? I mean, presumably they would sound like normal human beings. Yeah. And so that particular system that I spoke about earlier may not detect those, but we have other things in our bag of tricks. We're looking at other things that humans do, like disfluencies. So imagine that in an unrehearsed conversation, a speaker might um, say many um, pause words, like um, and they also have rises and falls in their voice. They emphasize certain words. You can imagine that those old techniques where we just have cuts of audio, people sound weird because they have emphasis in strange places in sentences. So we're using that disfluency to determine whether or not that's natural speech or unnatural speech. How do you envisage that a system like yours might actually work in practice? If I wanted to check a piece of audio was um, real or not, and I wanted to use your system, how would I do it? Well, right now, this is research. Our system is primarily for forensic analysis. And so that means after the fact. Now, if you were working in a call center at a financial institution, for example, this system could run in parallel and alert the person who was at the call center that something funny was going on. One of the limitations of deepfakes right now is that their ability to generate content on demand is somewhat limited. And so if you can then alert the person on the call center end that perhaps you should challenge or push the person on the other end, ask them questions they may not expect, like, you know, hey, did you see the sports result from last night? Or what's the weather like where you are? Questions they may not have prepared audio answers for ahead of time you may be able to trip up the campaign. Your research looks at audio, but I wonder if you might give us a view of the other tactics that people are looking at to try and detect different types of deepfake. Yeah, lots of different tactics, and they depend very much on the medium. So in images, for example, looking for objects that don't have shadows that are uh, consistent with the position of light. So you can imagine if the sun was in the top left, of an image that all of the shadows would be pointing to the bottom right. Um, a, a significant object in that image not having a shadow or a shadow in a very different direction suggests that something's not quite right. In video, uh, people again are looking for inconsistencies, whether it's in the movement of people or lighting, uh, whether when we're talking about faces, if we see consistent movement in the gesturing of those people or the location of body parts, if ears or noses seem to fluctuate in their size ever so slightly, those aren't things that regular human beings can do and that deepfakes indeed often do. There are concerns, of course, that deepfakes are going to be terrible for society. Uh, you know, you've outlined some already. But how much can we mitigate that with tactics like yours? Security is often a game of economics. And what's happened in the last five years is that the creation of deepfakes has become democratized and inexpensive for many of us. So we can create these very convincing adversarial images or sounds at very little cost. What my hope is, is that by using techniques like the ones we have, we make it very, very difficult for making such a media when it, it can't be detected. But I do want to note the security community is often alarmist and some of your listeners may be saying, why not just eliminate this technology altogether? 
It's really important that we understand that there are very, very positive uses for generative technology. So imagine you have a loved one who suffers from a disease, say they lose their ability to speak, and this technology can allow them to still communicate to the world in the way that they have, and in fact, in the way their families love. Similarly, in the entertainment industry, you can imagine that it is expensive to bring an actor back into a studio to re-record lines, and with their consent, you may be actually able to use a generative model to recapture those lines exactly the way you wanted without using that person's time. Ultimately, deepfakes come down to consent. Do we allow people to create copies of our voice and say things that perhaps we never said before? Okay, well, Patrick, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Unfortunately, you don't have a deep fake of my voice, so if you need to re-record, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get back on. But um, we'll, we'll, we don't worry; we'll sort it out. We can deep fake it. <laughs> the positive uses for deep fakes, as Patrick alluded to, are rapidly developing too. We recently explored a number of different applications for so-called generative AI on Babbage. Perhaps the most important of those right now are large language models, such as the one that ChatGPT is based on. Now, in our episode from December the twenty-seventh, we explored how text generation models might help computer programmers to write code, or even journalists to gather their thoughts. But teachers in America are worried that students could use ChatGPT to write their school essays. The New York City Department of Education is cracking down on a particular tool. Students and teachers can no longer access an artificial intelligence chatbot that generates writing. It's called ChatGPT. ChatGPT can make essays sound convincing to a reader who doesn't know the author's writing style very well. But apps are also being built to fight potential tricksters. In other words, to detect whether an essay has been penned by a student or by an AI. One of those apps is called GPT Zero, which turns the generative AI back on itself to look for two things. First, the complexity of the text. If the detection algorithm is familiar with the content, it's more likely to have been written by an AI. That's because GPT Zero is trained on similar data to ChatGPT. If the detector is perplexed by the text, that means the text is more likely to have been written by humans. The other thing it looks for is the variation of the essay's sentences. Humans tend to write sentences that differ in length, from long, complex ones to short ones, for effect. ChatGPT sentences tend to be more uniform. GPT zero ends up giving a user a likelihood that the text was generated by a human or an artificial intelligence. Turning deepfake models onto themselves is one way to detect fake media, but this needs a huge number of datasets in order to actually work, and it can't give much feedback on why something might be suspicious. Also, like in any other arms race, the people producing deepfakes are working tirelessly to evade detection algorithms. So the scientists at Intel Labs have been investigating other ways to distinguish real videos of humans from those that might have been tampered with by AI. 
Their tool is called Fake Catcher, and it tries to detect blood flow in the skin of a person's face. I asked Ilka Demir, a senior research scientist at Intel Labs, exactly how it works. Fake Catcher is using a PPG signal. PPG stands for photophotosmography, and uh, PPG signals is looking at the blood flow by looking at the color change on your skin due to the oxygen content of the blood. So Fake Catcher, which is your system, what you're trying to do is you look at a video and the system will try and look at the color changes on a person's face in that video to try and work out whether it's a real blood flow or not. Is that how it works? Yes. PPG signals for real videos, they have a uniform structural shape. But for fake videos, they are everywhere. There is no periodicity, there is no structure. And you cannot see that, like, the usual perception of that uh, heart rate in the fake videos. That's fascinating. And how accurate is the system that you've developed in testing? Fake Catcher has 96% accuracy in Fence Forensics dataset. But of course, uh, evaluating a model with just one dataset is never enough. But we also tested it on defects in the wild dataset. So in that dataset, the sources are unknown, there's compression artifacts, there's noise. All the artifacts you can think in the real world are in that data set. So on that data set, we have 91.07% accuracy, which is very high compared to what has been used for deepfake detection. Okay, so your 96% accuracy means that in 96% of the videos that you feed to the system, it will be able to tell whether or not it's a deep fake or not. Correct, yeah. And then for 4%, because of various problems with lighting or whatever else, it will have trouble. So that's how good it can be. How do you see the kinds of detection tools that we've been talking about being rolled out? Do you think that all online content should pass through deep fake filters just in case to make sure that we're not being tricked? If the information trust needs to be very high, like news or broadcasting in these platforms, I think there really needs to be a deepfake detection algorithm or platform that is real-time looking at all those videos so that the audience can understand that it is real or fake. So we want the algorithms to not only give that, like, oh, okay, it is real, it is fake, like that binary label. We want to support that result with as many supporting results as much as possible so that the user can make an informed decision about what to believe, what to not believe. Do you worry in your heart of hearts that there's going to be a point where perhaps the technologies and, and machine learning capabilities will get so good that it'll become harder and harder or perhaps even impossible to detect fakes? Absolutely. I never say like fake catcher will never be tricked. Of course, that doesn't happen. That's why we keep building new models. That's why we have been looking at how we can actually use motion and maybe correlate motion with other signals. That's why we developed the eye gaze-based detection. That's why we have been looking at other aspects about how we can improve fake capture, etc. So it is an arms range between detectors and generators. And the way that we are attacking this problem is looking at different signals so that they know what to trust and what not to trust. Elke, that has been fascinating. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Disinformation, of course, can exist and spread in a much more low-tech way than deepfakes. During the war in Ukraine, for example, working out whether or not an image or video is real 
has become a critical task. Coming up, can technology prove that a real image isn't fake? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Today on Babbage, we're exploring whether technology can be used to verify the authenticity of digital media. If you look at the war in Ukraine, there's no shortage of commentators who have pointed out that this is the most documented conflict probably in the history of the world, but more video and more photos don't equal more justice. And the reason, of course, is that there is plenty of fake imagery out there. Uh, There's plenty of software tools that allow for the editing of images, metadata, for editing of the images itself, and it can be extremely difficult to trace that. Benjamin Sutherland writes about technology and security for The Economist. And then, of course, you also have what's known as the liar's dividend, which means the benefit that a liar can get by pointing to the existence of some fakes to say you can't trust anything. And of course, when you're looking at court cases, uh, possible prosecutions related to Russian war crimes in Ukraine, the stakes are pretty high. Well, tell me how digital media is verified manually. I mean, what is the process that uh, journalists and others normally would use in Ukraine? Well, I guess there's a few things. One is, it's possible to say, okay, this photograph is purported to have been taken here. Well, you look in databases and you see what was the weather like? What's the landscape in the area? Are there uh, any landmarks that can lead you to believe actually it was taken in a different location? You can look for different clues. Uh, There's also forensics that can be done, but there's no software or app that can be used to kind of scan an image and just say at scale, hey, this image is real or has been authenticated. So these are expensive, time-consuming processes. Uh, You can hire forensics experts, and that is done for court cases and stuff like that. And big news organizations like the New York Times will hire these people regularly, but that's really only something you can do for a fairly small number of images. But it really doesn't scale for reassuring the public about the veracity of uh, the images around them. Okay, thanks very much, Ben. We'll speak to you again shortly. To help people authenticate images and carry out digital forensics in real time, it helps to automate as much of the process as possible. 
Eyewitness to Atrocities is an initiative of the International Bar Association. That's Wendy Betts, the director of Eyewitness to Atrocities. She told us about an app the organisation has developed called Eyewitness. The idea is to provide human rights defenders in conflict zones and other places that are experiencing large-scale human rights violations with a tool to help them record photo and video information that can actually be used as evidence to hold the perpetrators of those violations responsible. Even if footage of atrocities such as war crimes does exist, it's not uncommon that evidence can be dismissed in a court of law once it's challenged. Trying to prove a negative is hard, meaning that countering claims that images have been doctored can be very challenging. When we set about to build Eyewitness, we did about four years of research and development into the requirements for photo and video to be admissible as evidence. So three things that help to ensure that a piece of footage can be admissible are first, knowing where and when that footage has been taken in a way that can't be changed. Second is knowing that the integrity of that footage is intact, so knowing that it hasn't been edited in any way. And the third is being able to trace the lifespan of that footage to know that no changes have been made to it. So in legal terms, this is what we call the chain of custody, being able to know from the time it was created until the time that footage lands in the hands of an investigator who's had access to it and could any of those people make any changes to it. The app that Wendy and her team have designed uses a principle known as glass-to-glass. This means that the evidence, whether it's photos, videos or audio, is taken on the app. And then the app handles that data until it's ready for the screen of the judge's computer. The idea behind the Eyewitness app was to embed the information that is needed to help authenticate photo and video for use as evidence in court. So we designed the Eyewitness app to collect metadata around that footage in a way that can't be altered, which is different from using your standard mobile camera. So what you do when you open the Eyewitness app You take a photo or video using the app, and what the app is doing in the background is collecting information about where and when that photo was taken from multiple different sources that cannot be accessed or changed by the photographer themselves. You might have noticed that your smartphone gathers data about the time and place where a photo was taken. That's known as metadata. But Wendy's app uses several different sources to collect information about the location of an atrocity. This means it's much harder to tamper with or falsify the metadata. The app is collecting the latitude and longitude using the GPS hardware sensors on the device itself directly from the the satellite link. It's also recording the identification information about nearby Wi-Fi networks that are in range of your phone. So just as any of us walk into a building, our phone is recording what Wi-Fi networks might be available for us to join. The app is recording that information. Then the third source is the cell towers. So similarly, as we go about our daily life, your phone is pinging for nearby cell towers, so it's ready immediately whenever you want to make a call. The app is recording the identification number of those cell towers. And then we have a subscription to a commercial database where we can look up both the Wi-Fi networks and the cell tower ID information. And that gives us the actual latitude and longitude to where those are registered. So now we have three separate data points showing the vicinity of where that footage was taken. 
The app uses a similar principle for date and time, so that not even the photographer, and certainly not someone who might confiscate the phone, can edit the metadata. The second criteria to ensure that evidence is admissible is making sure that the image itself isn't edited in any way. All the footage is stored encrypted in a secure gallery inside the app. So the user doesn't have access to any editing features to make any changes to that footage. And they don't have access to the raw media file. What we have done to put a check on that is we use what is called a hash value. So we run the image through an algorithm that uses the pixel values to come up with a unique alphanumeric code that's basically a digital fingerprint for that image. And that's collected right at the point of capture. And that is stored encrypted in a file together with the other metadata that the app has collected about where and when the footage has been taken. And that accompanies the image when it is sent to the eyewitness server. Once the image reaches eyewitness, we run that algorithm again to confirm those hash values match. And we store that information. And this is a process that can be run at any point in the lifespan of that footage. Recalculating the hash should yield an identical result if the image is authentic. If even a single pixel of the image has been altered, the recalculated hash will not match the original. This system is being widely deployed as a way of testing for tampering for images, video and audio. The third measure for authenticity is being able to trace the lifespan of the footage. Because it's a closed system where the footage is taken with the eyewitness app and then transferred to a server that we maintain, we can trace its lifespan and protect the chain of custody, meaning we know that nobody has had access to change it from the time it was created. So this combination of the independent and accurate metadata, hash fingerprints and encrypted servers make it possible to verify images for a court of law footage collected with the app has appeared in court. Uh, it helped in a conviction in the Democratic Republic of Congo of two militia leaders that had been accused of complicity in a, a massacre. And they, in the end, were charged with crimes against humanity. And footage with the app was incorporated into that body of evidence uh, against them. I'm back with The Economist's Benjamin Sutherland. Ben, we've just heard Wendy Betts talking about the Eyewitness to Atrocities app. How important is that tool in verifying images and video and audio? It's actually very important. First of all, I'll start off by saying that Microsoft and a number of other tech companies started off with a very different approach. And they said, we've developed pretty good spam filters. And we can use the same technology, the same approach, which is essentially machine learning. You present software with a batch of spam and you present it with a batch of uh, non-spam emails and you ask the software to start looking for patterns. And that machine learning approach has worked very well for developing spam filters. But Microsoft eventually came to the conclusion that it would never work for authenticating imagery. In fact, I spoke with Microsoft's chief scientific officer, Eric Horvitz. He said that it would end up being a neck and neck forever race between AI to detect doctored images and AI to disguise them. That was essentially what happened before organizations, including Eyewitness to Atrocities, said, you know, we've got to figure out the, the so-called glass-to-glass system to create a secure 
digital pipeline from the lens to the screen of viewers. And it's an entirely different approach than using AI. And also, if uh, a small percentage of spam messages get through into your email inbox, that's an inconvenience, but it's no big deal. But if 1% of doctored images were verified as real, uh, that could still cause havoc. Yeah, the, the margins for error are near zero in this case, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. The stakes are high. The stakes are yeah. high. Um, you've been recently reporting on the Eyewitness to a Trustees app for The Economist, but that's not the only one. What other tools and apps and software are there out there to assist people with the verification process that seems to be a really important factor in the documentation of this war? Absolutely. Well, there is an outfit called The Guardian Project, which is based in Valhalla, New York, essentially composed of a lot of volunteers putting time and energy into developing an image authentication system called Proof Mode. And Proof Mode essentially sends the hash to a Google repository that serves as a notary. And so, in a sense, that system may eventually scale even better because it requires less work and less manual dealing with the data than the uh, eyewitness to atrocity system does. Another thing that the app does is it attempts to detect whether or not there is any malware on the phone which could facilitate trickery. So Ben, you've talked about a lot of processes where people are manually comparing things like weather data and other things. Can anyone automate that yet? Well, the Guardian project is working very hard on that, in fact. And in February, they expect to release a feature they call Synchrony, which will essentially connect the time and location data, the metadata of an image, to online databases of weather and street maps and say, you know, the, the picture purported to have been taken in this time and place, well, there's an issue with the weather and the landscape. And so that casts a lot of doubt on the veracity of the photo. All of these apps and tools um, exist sort of within their own silos, their own sort of databases and their own systems and protocols. And I wonder, are there ways of trying to connect these things together and perhaps have more open standards where someone can use any app or any tool that can then be read by a different tool somewhere else? I mean, what's the sort of future there? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And in fact, Microsoft, Adobe, Intel, and a number of other outfits are attempting to develop a standards-based approach where a large number of software and hardware manufacturers would adopt a set of technology standards that they're developing. They've named the project the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity. For short, they call that C2PA. So you want to take the user out of the equation and just have this working kind of behind the scenes. And in time, the goal of uh, these companies working on the technology standards is for someone to be able to right-click on an image that appears on social media or on a website and query uh, the authenticity of the image. And, and uh, the system behind the scenes would send a query to a hash database, find a match or not, and then report back within a moment or two and, and tell the user if uh, the image is an original or if it has been doctored. This is exciting work, and there's other directions it's moving in. For example, the Starling Lab at Stanford University is working on an effort to use blockchain ledgers, including Ethereum, to collect and store hash information for photos. So there's a number of ways these efforts could move in the future. 
Now, we started this show by looking at how to detect deep fakes. And now with you, we've explored the flip side of that, which is looking at you know images in the real world and working out whether or not they're real. But to what extent is digital fakery impacting society itself and especially wars and things? I mean, are we going to just going to have to become less trusting of everything we see? Uh, well, we're, we're seeing this happen already. I think that part of the political polarization that we're seeing is due to the existence of digital fakes. And it's not just that there are a lot of fakes out there. It's also people don't trust what they see going back again to this notion of the liar's dividend. Anyone can cast doubt on anything just by the mere fact that we all know there are some fakes out there. And so this is having a corrosive effect on society, I would say. Ben, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Verifying digital media will not only be increasingly useful in politics or warfare. You can imagine that this kind of technology will one day be used to track and check up on, say, supply chains, perhaps even quantify how much biodiversity is being lost in some part of the world, or check up on how much carbon is being sequestered in a particular forest. But perhaps the most important aspect of this new, fake media environment is human behaviour. We'll all need to rethink the way that we deal with the images, video, audio and text that we come across. Working out what's authentic will just have to become part of our everyday mental processing. Technology can hopefully go some way to helping us do that. But being vigilant, being critical about what we see and hear, that will be up to us. By the way, I'll let you work out which bits of that last section were deep fakes and which were the real me. Our thanks to Patrick Trainer, Ilka Demir, Wendy Betts, and The Economist's Benjamin Sutherland. And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read plenty more about Ben's piece explaining image authentication technology in the current edition of The Economist. You can also explore our defence editor's essay on how open source intelligence has had an outsized impact on Ukrainian efforts on the ground. To read all of that, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producers are Marguerite Howell and for the final time for a little while, Hannah Mourinho. Hannah is taking a break from looking after Babbage to looking after her own probably much better behaved and far more interesting newborn baby. We wish her every success in this brand new adventure. I'm the real Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 
Or am I really? Hey, hey, deepfake, stop. I can still actually hear you, you know. <laughs>